since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <laughs> Somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. I'm your co-host, Matthew Zachary, a proud 18-year young adult survivor of brain cancer. My fabulous co-host, Annie Goodman, is in an undisclosed bunker somewhere in New York City, recovering. We wish her well, send her the best. She will be returning to the air very shortly. All righty. Not okay. 72,000 young adults diagnosed with cancer every year. Got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks. Because the stupid cancer show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. Uh, I'm Kenny Kane, co-founder of Stupid Cancer, welcoming all of our first-time and returning listeners on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, iHeartRadio Talk, or listening to the archives on stupidcancershow.org. Tonight's show is going to be a doozy. Returning champion Dan Pallotta is joining us for an exclusive 30-minute interview. He is the author of Uncharitable Charity Case, uh, TED speaker with over 3 million views on his video, here to talk about disruption, innovation in the nonprofit sector, founder of Pilata Teamworks, the inventor of the multi-day charitable event industry. He's a real mover and shaker, inspirational guy. Savara Spotlight on Erin Scarda, writer and curator of Nation Swell. And I'm Maureen Sweet, manager of programs and operations here at Stupid Cancer, and I will be live tweeting throughout the broadcast at Chemodex. So send me your questions and feedback at any time with the hashtag SCRadio. All righty. A little self-ingratiating applause for the usual. It never hurts. Indeed. never hurts. We could always use it. Thankless jobs, right? Thankless jobs? Um, I've heard a couple of things. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> well, we're, we have a special well, guest tonight. I thank Matt and Kenny. What? We do have a special guest. Allie Ward. Allison Ward. Back in the studio. Allison P. Ward. Good evening. Four eyes. Nice glasses. Thank you. What happened with that? It's called age. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm turning 42 next week, so yeah. it's time for my body to catch up with that. Well, you look great. Thank you. But you look great. <laughs> I hate that, but thank you. Yeah. No, it's a good look for you. Is that like when people from the South say, bless your heart? Yes, bless your heart. Bless your heart. You say a little poor. It's like a middle finger in disguise. It's a pity party. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And uh, Kenny, welcome back. Thank you. You were on a a business-ish trip to San Antonio. People were telling me, bless my heart. Yes. For a week. What were you doing there? I was at the Etail West Conference, mingling and doing things related to e-commerce and learning. Were you the only charity there? I don't know. There's uh, about 2,000 people that were there. There were 1,400 people not staying at the hotel that I was staying at because there's only 700 rooms. Imagine that. Yeah, wow. So trying to... They didn't force roommates? No. (laughs) (laughs) Click new friends. Although I have a funny story. When I was in Vegas, they actually had had somehow partnered me up with a woman in my room, but needless to say, it did not get further than the registration desk. Right. But I digress. <laughs> when you say partnered you up with a woman, just kidding. I, <laughs> it was a female name. Hey, now. That's all I know. Uh, so so what did you learn? Uh, what are the takeaways? Well, I went last year, uh, about probably six months after 
we launched our very own web store and uh, definitely had a better perception having a, another year under my belt and uh, learned a lot. Yeah. So what's going on in the world of e-commerce? What are, I mean, we have a store. Yes. That's, that's what most people yes. know. So, so I'll be honest, m- most of it is, uh, is enterprise and most of it, uh, most of the companies have a brick and mortar and online presence. Um, that does not take away from the value of attending, but they talk about things like purple Wi-Fi, what? which is when you go to JCPenney's or Macy's or any of these places that offer public Wi-Fi now, right. they can track your movements in the store as soon as you log into their Wi-Fi. Oh, wow. So they know that you stood in front of the coffee pot display for 20 minutes. You can expect an email within 24 hours or however long marketing coffee pots to you. Wow. Uh, and they're also doing... Why is it called purple? I don't know. Why is anything called... Anything. If I... <laughs> All the other colors were taken. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they're also doing a thing now where if you buy a T-shirt online at American Apparel, and then you walk into American Apparel, it'll say, Matt bought a T-shirt a month ago, and it'll have a picture of your shiny head. Just because you Just, plug onto their Wi-Fi network? No, 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 no. This is totally different. So this the sales clerk right. knows you're in the store because if you have the app... They have the American Apparel app. I get it. Okay. It's a trigger. So they is that like passport on the iPhone when you walk into a store it knows you're there? No, you would have to have their app okay. or some other mechanism for them to identify your your phone number, I suppose. So so what? All right, scale of one to ten, creepy factor of everything you've learned. Well, well Amazon is a twenty on the creepy factor mm-hmm. because they know everything, and and a lot of the keynotes suggest that people envy what Amazon's doing as if they're somehow the Matrix. Really? So people are trying to catch up to Amazon, which is like this, you know. Are they really going like to deliver drones? Drones are going to deliver when, before you even order? Any, I don't think I heard anybody speak from Amazon. So if you think about something, it will just show up at your doorstep. Yes. That's just well, by thinking about it. Yeah, so a lot of it also goes back to uh, the cyclical purchases, whereas if you did buy that coffee pot every two weeks or so, you might need a bag of coffee. Wow. So it's fascinating. It's, uh, Were you really like taken aback by? Was it like the technology was so much better this year than last year? Have it's, it, yeah, it's just. I mean, they talk. They give you case studies, and they were like, "Yeah, well, we had lunch, a lunch discussion last year at this event, and look at our, our proven wow, whatever, so. very cool. It's a fast moving industry." Well, I want to uh, first of all public service announcement. It is daylight savings time for those who have not sprung forward. Unlike rare Ma, Rob, uh, what's the face from Toronto who said spring, uh, fall back. For spring forward, Rob Ford, the Rob mayor, Ford? the crazy crack mayor, love him. Uh, he, him. He tweeted uh, fall back on spring oh. forward day. So, oh, good man. <laughs> isn't, there, isn't there? Bless his heart. Don't, yeah. <laughs> don't you? Uh, don't you stay put in Arizona somewhere in mountain time? Yeah, yeah. Part of Arizona doesn't do it. That's got to be horrible if you work in live in Arizona, like but work in New Mexico or somewhere else where you you are in. The where you're like where you're in a different yeah, time like zone. Yeah, a five hour commute. <laughs> yeah, it's got to be rough. Think the winter when they don't do it, or the, I don't know. They just well, go. they're right half of the year. <laughs> I don't know which half it is though. Hopefully, it's this half. This half is so much nicer. The days are longer. If they have like the short days and the early evenings right. all year. Yeah. Or I think they're right though. We need we don't need daylight savings time anymore. Anyway. Yeah. They originally said it was for crop rotations to keep, you know, life for crop, sure. but it was actually for World War II, or, uh, sorry, World War II, so our lights would be out, so when the Nazis didn't fly over the United States, they wouldn't see us. That was the actual reason. Really? That's and my NORAD NASA. I don't believe any of that. I don't, I don't believe that. Theory. This Matt fact has been brought to <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Anyway, you also want to announce the, uh, the road trip officially has a website. It's been up for a while, but Stupid Kids are Road Trip. Kenny will be manning a vehicle with our fab uh, AV photographer, Uber guy, John Sabia, and he's going to be hitting up Boston, D.C., Cleveland, Indianapolis, Chicago, St. Louis, Denver, Salt Lake City, San Francisco, Irvine, Phoenix, and finally crashing in Las Vegas. Oh, great. Are you prepared? Uh, not to crash, but to <laughs> arrive safely. Oh, I think crash is really the operative word there. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps. Uh, well, I did watch Gravity last night. Oh, how was it? I have not seen it. It's pretty amazing. Is it intense? It's, um, I don't know. There seems to be a trend with these movies where, like, these actors are just in it by themselves. Right. It's like that, uh, I forget what, what his name is, the actor who's, like, on a boat. What? Oh. Tom Cruise? Tom no. Hanks? Tom, no, it's, it's, Tom Jones? Yes. <laughs> it's not unusual. Not unusual. 
No, I'll think of it, and then I'll come full circle. On a boat? Yeah, but it's, anyway, the theme is that... <laughs> Robert Redford? It could be. The theme is that, you know, these actors are in the movie by themselves for two hours. And right. How do you occupy it? Time. It's like it's like Castaway. Yeah. You just yell at yourself. <laughs> Wilson! Yep. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, you're right. Robert Redford, all is lost. All is lost. He's right. basically on a boat, mm-hmm. and, and Sandra Bullock is up in the sky by herself. Very nice. Yeah. Very nice. With George Clooney. Well, on a serious note, we do want to take a moment of silence to honor. We lost uh, two extraordinary warriors uh, this past week within the stupid cancer family, uh, Emily Morrison and uh, Jeff Bernard. Uh, ultimately succumbed to their disease and they were incredible warriors and stewards and brand ambassadors and they embodied the uh, spirit of the young adult cancer world. So just uh, 10 seconds for, for Jeff and Emily. Thank you. Okay, let's kick off the show. Got a great show for you guys lined up tonight. Okay, Aaron Scarta was diagnosed with cervical cancer, stage 1B1, in 2008 when she was just 24 years old. Uh, she's here to discuss her story. She's an extraordinary activist and advocate, and uh, married with no kids, wants kids one day, and uh, even five years after surgery. It ain't over when it's over. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Aaron Scarta. Hello, Aaron. Hello. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? We're really excited. Where are you joining us from tonight? I am in Denver, Colorado. I actually just moved here uh, last summer. Um, This is my hometown, but I was living in New York for six years before that. Wow. Well, we have a pseudo-commonality because my program, VCA program, Allie, who technically lives in Baltimore but comes up to New York, be moving to Denver. I'm going to spend the summer there. Yeah, you should definitely come here. It's the best state in the country, obviously. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I, I'm I'm really uh, happy that you're calling in, and it's good to talk to you. Um, but I, I'd love you to just kick off this segment by telling us your story. You were diagnosed at 24 with cervical cancer, stage 1B1. So what was life at the age of 23 like? Well, um, I had just moved to New York uh, just a few months after I had graduated from college. So needless to say, everything was going pretty well for me. I uh, I moved there because I'm a journalist and I wanted to get into the national magazine industry. I actually started my career working as an editor at American Cheerleader Magazine, which is... uh, Is that a thing? It is a thing. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I worked there for about three years and I was there when I was diagnosed. At the time, actually, an interesting part of my diagnosis, I had had a pap smears every year. I was always on time. I was actually, the the time that I was diagnosed, I actually went too early to get my pap test, and they sent me home saying that my insurance wouldn't cover it because I was two weeks too soon. So uh, I guess I was really looking forward to getting this diagnosis because I went in and it came back abnormal, pretty standard. They wanted to do the colposcopy. She told me probably didn't need to worry about anything. She called me at my office a few days later, told me I needed to come in. You know, nobody wants to hear that, that they actually want to see you in their doctor's office. So I went in and I didn't really know what to expect. Um, Hearing those words was one of the most, I would say it was one of the defining moments of my life now, looking back. And, um, the night before, I had actually moved in with my boyfriend, who is now my current husband. So um, I thought that was a pretty good sign that we were meant to be together because <laughs> we had just moved in together, and then I had gotten this life-changing diagnosis, and he was right there with me through it all. So um, I basically found out I cried a lot. I could say uh, I don't think I stopped crying for a good 24 hours. Um, I left the office, and just felt very unsure of what what was going to happen. They had told me they weren't they just didn't know anything about, you know, where it was located and, you know, how advanced it was and if I was going to need a hysterectomy and if I was going to be able to have children and all of those things when you're 24, 
is just very overwhelming. So um, I've always wanted to have kids, and unfortunately, being able to talk to my now husband, but then boyfriend about it when we had just been together for, I think, just over two years at that point. So it was a little uncomfortable at age 24 to, to go over that. Um, and she had sent me, my gynecologist had sent me to an oncologist in New York City who I absolutely love and was such a rock for me. We did a comb biopsy, came back with positive margins. Well, she had recommended... What, what is comb biopsy? What does that mean for our listeners out there? A comb biopsy is basically just a bigger um, biopsy of the cervix. You are under general anesthesia so that they can get a nice sample, and it's basically just a cone-shaped biopsy of the cervix to determine. They actually use it for diagnostic purposes, so they wanted to determine where it was located, you know, where the masses were, if the cancer cells were within or or outside of that biopsy area. So for me, the, the margins were positive, so there was cancer cells outside of the area that they had taken out. Um, in a lot of cervical cancer cases or pre-cervical cancer cases, a cone biopsy or a leap would be able to rid you of the disease. In my case, that wasn't true. Um, I didn't really expect it to <laughs> when I went in. Actually, I was pretty much certain that it was going to need something more invasive, so I wasn't very surprised. I was I was disappointed, but not surprised. So, so in um, terms of, we obviously you had, you brought this up several times. The the idea of you wanted to be a mom one day, you wanted to have kids one day, and obviously an aspiration of the majority of young people in the world. And right. uh, you, you were presented with the option of of having a hysterectomy, or they kind of just said you're getting this, and you said no. Um, I was kind of given. I didn't know that there was another option until my oncologist told me that I might be a candidate just based on where the cancer was located for a radical trachelectomy. And it was a new procedure at the time. It was very new. Um, I can't remember the exact number, but I know that when I had it done, there were like 80 people who had had it done. (laughs) So... It was very uh, nerve-wracking. I was able to find a few people um, through the National Cervical Cancer Coalition's message boards who had had the same surgery. Uh, I connected with them, learned about their experiences. But, you know, at that point, I don't think any of the people I connected with had tried to have children yet. And, you know, they, it was all just, you know, should we do it? Like, should I do it? Should I just have a hysterectomy? Is it worth it? You know, and so there was a lot of going back and forth. I actually took quite a bit of time to decide what I wanted to do. Um, Luckily, since I was in New York City at the time, there were two doctors in the area who could perform a trachelectomy. One of them was at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and the other one was at Valley Hospital in Ridgewood, New Jersey. And he was actually my oncologist's fiance. So um, it was kind of an interesting, an interesting in there. I ended up going with him just because um, I was, felt very comfortable with him. He was actually from Colorado and um, went to my rival high school, so that was a nice connection. Um, mm. And he was able to do the procedure laparoscopically, which was really nice. Um, we were not really sure going into it what was going to happen. He knew that... It was a long procedure. It was about five hours, and he wasn't sure if he was going to be able to get everything. And they did the tests when um, the immediate biopsies and the testing on site to see if the cancer cells were outside the margins, and it wasn't. So I was very lucky (laughs) and basically had to sign a waiver when I went under saying, I'm expecting a trachelectomy, but if I have to have a hysterectomy, I allow that to happen. So waking so up, know. you didn't even know if you'd wake up barren or not. I would, yeah, I had no idea. So luckily, as soon as I woke up, I, I was able to see my doctor and my nurse, and they told me that it was very successful, that everything went perfectly, that it was exactly the amount of time that they thought I was going to be under, no more, no less. So, um, you know, it was all good news once I came out of it. Um, except I was in excruciating pain, but, you know, that's kind of to be expected when they move around your whole body, 
and then put it all back. All right, so let's talk about your seemingly extraordinary warrior boyfriend, now husband. Um, <laughs> okay, let's talk about him. So that's, that's the, the plight of the young adult. You're dating, you're single, how do you deal with it? People abandon you. Like, he's, he's stuck with you, and what was that like for you and for him? Um, you know, I think it was difficult for both of us. Um, as I said, we had moved in together the night before. So, you know, things had gotten fairly serious, but, you know, we also lived in New York, and it just kind of so happens that we kind of moved in together probably sooner than we would have if we had lived somewhere that was cheaper to live. <laughs> um, right. You know, I, I had no doubt that we that I loved him and that he loved me and that, you know, there was a future there. I just didn't know what the future would hold, especially being 24 and going through this. Um, right. But he was really my rock through it and has been ever since. Um, I'm a very anxious person at, just in general. Um, having cancer made me an even more anxious person. <laughs> so um, I've spent a lot of time working on that, and he is completely opposite. He's very grounded, very calm. So he definitely brings me to that place where I need to be uh, a little more centered and connected to myself and just realizing that things aren't always as dire as I might think they are. Well, every so. Titan is an anchor, so I, I'm right there exactly. with you. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so having the conversation our- about kids at that point was a little uncomfortable, but, um, you know, we, we had it, and we thankfully were on the same page that – we both wanted to eventually have kids, but we weren't we weren't married to the fact that we wanted them to absolutely be biological kids. That you know, if things happen down the road and it's not going to work out, there are other ways to go about having kids. And um, it was uncomfortable, and it's still as uh, we're married now, a little over a year. And now that I have friends having kids, and we have nieces and nephews, it's it's coming to the forefront that that's going to be an issue we're going to have to deal with within the next few years. And you're just not sure what's going to happen. Right. So let's, let's, it's, it's, it's a partially uncomfortable conversation to have, especially again, if all your friends are living their lives and taking 10 steps forward and moving on, you know, you're sitting there, you know, self-stigmatized or, or seemingly self-stigmatized and, and, you know, caught in like this, this survivor gap. Like, what do I do with my life? And it, it, this is not unique. This is the young adult story. But do you have a fertility navigator? Do you know if you're fertile? Do, what, what else have you, uh, who have you spoken to? What processes have you gone through um, on top of the incredible psychological burden of, of what would this be like to bring someone into the world? At this point, we haven't really done anything um, other than just, you know, my new, usual checkups and um, as far as my oncologist in New York, she always said, everything looks like it would be fine. Like, there's no reason you wouldn't be able to carry a child. You know, all the parts are there that you need. Um, it could be more difficult to get pregnant. It could be um, a trying pregnancy. You would most likely have to be on bed rest for at least six months is what they're saying, which to me is, seems very difficult but probably doable. I could, I could pull it together for that. Um, as far as like taking any other steps, we haven't really gotten to that point yet, but, um, I have a new oncologist here in Denver and she's great, but we haven't really talked about that in depth yet. Although I'm sure within the next few years, that will be a conversation that we'll start working towards. So you were uh, a writer already previously prior to your diagnosis, correct? Yes. Did, did that help you or, or, or get in the way of, of your ability to want to express yourself and share with others? Um, I would say it helped me for sure. Um, when I first found out, I was, I was devastated, and my life was definitely – I thought it was going one way. I was very focused on my career. Um, I mean, I moved across the country to, to do this. I took a lot of sacrifices, and um, to – have to put that on hold for a while was very difficult. And um, I don't know if I, I feel sometimes that I never really caught up to that. Like I, I missed basically like a year of my career that I could have been moving up and 
exploring opportunities and doing this and that. Um, of course, now I know that I'm exactly where I should be in my career. Um, but as a writer, it was hard to – it wasn't difficult to express it in my personal journals and my personal writing. It was a lot harder for me to publish writing on it. And I actually have you know, struggled with this idea of having a lot to say but not really sure of how to get it out there or if I really – should put it out there. Um, just, you know, as a writer, I don't want to be pigeonholed to something, but at the same time, I've spoken to so many women and I've done, you know, some advocacy work and I know that it is important to share and that is definitely something that I've always wanted to do. So there's definitely some some little push and shove there. Um, something's kind of holding me back from truly going all the way there. But at the same time, I'm not I'm not actively trying to close off from it either. Right. It's very weird. <laughs> so your your new uh, medical uh, providers in Denver um, are they aware yeah. of your your history and are they sensitive to it? And, and what what does your your regiment look like these days as far as follow up? Well, in September, I just had my five year cancer anniversary, um, which is a big deal. <laughs> yeah, it was very exciting. Um, and I've only seen my new oncologist here a few different times. When I first got here, my oncologist in New York had actually helped me. We got on the phone one day. I was like, I don't know who to, what to do. There's just not very many oncologists here. None of them in Denver that I'm aware of are trained to do the procedure I had. So that was a little different. And, you know, my oncologist in New York, we were very close you know, we to talk on the phone, and she was just very um, supportive of me, and she knew, I don't know, I felt like I very I connected with her on a very deep level, um, and her husband, who was the one who did my um, trachelectomy. So when I got here, it was, it was difficult to move to a different care provider. Um, right now, we're just doing a basic, you know, PAP every year. When I first moved here, I did my last uh, PET-CT scan, my PAP, Everything was fine. Everything has been fine ever since I've had my surgery. So um, besides having some lingering issues that um, I'm still dealing with, for the most part, I haven't had any relapses or any big scares since then, which is really great. Right. I mean, they're like the bumper stickers after a cross-country trip. You you can't get rid of them. They're just there. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's true. Well, I'm, I'm really glad that obviously we're, we're thrilled that you're well, and, and five years is the magic number these days, and it's, it's very satisfying to, to celebrate that. I hope you were able to at least go out for a nice dinner and celebrate that your kids aren't wiping their diarrhea all over the bathroom <laughs> like I are, which will happen one day. Um, but, yeah, you know, definitely. Parenting is, <laughs> is a blessing, I swear to God. In any case, um, so, so just in, in closing up, so you're now writing, you're now freelance, which must be very freeing, literally, to, yes. to be on your own terms. And you're writing for Nation Swell. I haven't heard of that until I, I, I read it on your, your bio. Uh, what is right. nationswell.com? Well, it's actually a new media company, and we just launched in beta in December. So it's actually a really awesome mission. The mission of the website is to highlight the ideas and the innovators who are changing America. So this is a lot of good news. This isn't something you'll see, um, you know, those very far and few between stories of people doing good things that you see on the news, and that's all we focus on. So um, I've been writing for them since the end of December, and it's definitely, it's a nice change to do, to write about positive things and good missions and, you know, kind of looking at the people who are pushing America forward. Well, we've been speaking with Aaron. Garda, uh, a five-year cancer anniversary uh, of her stage 1B1 cervical cancer diagnosis in 2008. Um, she is a writer for Nation Swell, formerly for Time Magazine, and she has apparently a verified Twitter account. Very enviable. How do you get that done? <laughs> oh, yeah, I have a verified Twitter account. Um, it's, uh, when I was working at Time, they, they helped us get our, our um, Twitter handles verified. So luckily when I moved... When I moved on from time, I was able to keep that. So it is a nice right, well, little check mark by my name. Now. Sending our <laughs> applications in today. Yes. <laughs> so 
sounds well, good. We look forward to, uh, to meeting you in Denver. We have a great community there that's growing, and we, we're hosting events there all the time, and Allie will be out there. Actually, I will be out there with Allie in, uh, what, two weeks or so? Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll get you plugged in. It's really exciting to yeah, have it. definitely. Have show. So good okay, luck to great. you, and thanks for calling in. Thank you for having me, and have a great okay. show. Aaron Scott, everyone. All right, Kenny, let's hit up the news here. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is Eye on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Head on over to events.stupidcancer.org. That is events.stupidcancer.org, your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events nationwide. Something could be happening in your neck of the woods. We certainly don't want you missing out. Have some events coming up in Renton, Washington, Rochelle Park, New Jersey, St. Paul, Minnesota, Raleigh, North Carolina, Anchorage, Alaska, and Lakewood, Colorado. Again, Anchorage. There's something going on in Alaska. That's pretty awesome. I think they're fishing. (laughs) (laughs) Stupid cancer ice fishing. All right, folks, Vegas time. Registration for the 7th Annual OMG Cancer Summit for Young Adults is in full force. Join hundreds of your fellow young adult patients, survivors, and caregivers for an epic three-and-a-half-day event that will change your life. Visit omg2014.org to learn more, and don't forget about the OMG Players Club, which is your path to a $600 travel scholarship just by fundraising for stupid cancer. All right, it's always time to stock up on some new stupid cancer gear. We've got a ton of new stuff. Check it out. StupidCancerStore.org. Be proud. Wear stupid cancer. And finally, Stupid Cancer is launching a mobile health app called Instapeer this spring. It's going to be revolutionary. It's going to revolutionize. It's going to do something something really revolutionary. Uh, Is that a word? I don't even know. It's the first platform of its kind that will do automatic anonymous peer matching for cancer patients and caregivers, and it's incredibly exciting. Go to Facebook.com slash Instapeer, follow Instapeer on Twitter, or watch the video and learn more at Instapeer.org. And that is your Stupid Stupid Cancer News. All right, I'm excited to have Dan back on the show. It's been too long. Dan Pallotta is best known, among a million other things, for creating the multi-day charitable event industry and a new generation of philanthropists with the AIDS Rise and Breast Cancer three-day events, which have raised half a billion dollars in nine years. President of Advertising for Humanity, founder and president of the charity, Defense Council, author of Uncharitable and Charity Case, his infamous TED Talk, The Way We Think About Charity is Dead Wrong, has nearly three million total views, and he has gone about fundamentally transforming the way the public thinks about charity. A hero of mine, he joins us once again back on the Super Cancer Show tonight. Welcome back, Mr. Dr. Reverend Dan Pilata. Thank you. Hey, Matthew. In all seriousness, I, 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 I bow at, the, uh, at your feet for all you've accomplished and that we're completely exploiting and taking advantage of here at Super Cancer. Yeah, well, look, I'm, I'm, I'm looking on my uh, dictionary uh, for the exact definition of infamous, which is the adjective used to describe my TED Talk. Infamous, <laughs> adjective, well-known for some bad quality or deed, wicked, abominable. Nice beginning. I just <laughs> you know, last cool. time you had me on, you had Ken Berger ambush me from the, the behind the bushes. Is he lurking here somewhere again today, no, or is it just us? Found all you, and honestly... It's been a while since Matt took the SAT. <laughs> I didn't mean... I, I stand corrected. I didn't mean infamous in that context, but I mean infamous in the sense, and I'm not really spinning this, famous. but but famous. famous. <laughs> yeah, even How's infamous that? in the... Yes, I... Yes. Yep. Good. The word irregardless and literally. <laughs> don't take it personally. Yeah, I want to know that. more. That, how, how do I get my Twitter account verified? You didn't press that woman hard <laughs> enough to figure out how we make that happen. It's yeah, a total mystery, and they tell you that there's. it's sort of like the Puritans, like you either were elected by God or you weren't, and you didn't know till you right. died. You have to be you know. <laughs> anyway, there is no Ken Berger tonight. You have the entire show to yourself, 30 minutes to just talk about how you are truly making such a huge difference. And, and I, I just want to start at the very beginning. For those who don't already know the impact you've already had, it, it's no small claim to say you've raised half a billion dollars for charity, but you have done just that. And would you like to just start at the beginning? What got you into um, the, the cause of AIDS in the 90s and the early 2000s and, and gave you the vision 
to make this this industry staple that we take advantage of and take for granted today. You, you brought it into existence from nothing. Well, I, I happen to be gay, and you know, nineteen. 90, 91, 92, 89, 88, these were just terrible, terrible years. Um, and, you know, people people were being just wiped out, you know. Uh, 25, 26, 27-year-old guys, you were, going to, you were going to funerals every three or four weeks. You were meeting their parents at their memorial services. You know, it was just the strangest thing to be born at this this time when you know having sex could get you uh, killed and when I was in college I had organized this bike ride across America for uh, Oxfam and 39 of us rode our bikes 4200 miles across the continental United States and you know that 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 project really was the beginning of it all for me and the, and the motivation for that really came out of the hunger project which Warner Earhart created in his his vision in 19 I don't know whatever it was 80 was uh the end of hunger by the year 2000 and you know that just the the uh magnitude of that dream really really inspired me and so I wanted to do something big to contribute toward it so we did this 4200 mile ride across America and then you know 8 9 years later I guess it was I I began losing friends to AIDS and realize there's nothing big for people to do you know <clears throat> all we can do is stick a red ribbon on our jacket or go buy a $500 ticket to the AIDS Project Los Angeles gala dinner or do the AIDS walk you know which is wonderful but it's 10 kilometers long you know we need people need something big to do like that cross country bike ride so that was really how it started. We started with California AIDS Ride, which was uh, a seven-day ride from San Francisco to L.A. And you know, and there were a lot of people who were who were skeptical. Um, you know, I don't want to I don't want to create straw men, but there 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 were a lot of people who said, "Look, you're just not going to get people to ride their bikes seven days from San Francisco to L.A. and then and then you want them to raise two thousand dollars mandatory on top of it. You know, it's, it's not going to happen. You're going to get a handful of people, but you know, like most things in life, they just underestimated the 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 the, the magnitude at which people want to contribute and the desire of people to make a difference. And that first California AIDS ride netted netted after all expenses a little over a million dollars, and and we knew we were right, you know. And so we just began expanding things from there. <clears throat> well, it's, it's it goes back to the old Steve Jobs line where don't give people what they want, give them what they don't know they want, and people didn't have a vehicle of this like of this grandeur and magnitude to feel like they were making a difference and and you really did create a structure that has done so much for so many different disease sectors so uh, i i wanted to just fast forward to where in that timeline did things change that got you in this position of of the frustrations in the the culture of charity in this country and where where are the gaps? Why is there such a the disparity in success models and outcomes that has formed the basis of your entire, the majority of your platform is all about that. And just one of your quotes is like, too many nonprofits are re- rewarded for how little they spend, not for what they get done. And, and this idea of impact versus, you know, what percentage are you giving to overhead is, is such an extraordinary dialogue that is now almost mainstream, correct? Yeah, you know, it happened really early on. The the, the motivation to, to to start thinking about these things, or the thinking about these things, we did that first AIDS ride, and it was just glorious. You know, 478 people rode in it. They raised way more money than we thought they were going to raise. As I just said, you know, they netted a million thirteen thousand dollars. We only thought we were going to net six hundred thousand dollars. So it was like. Wow, <clears throat> crack the champagne. This is incredible how powerful this is. What a huge success this was for the, at the time it was the LA Gay and Lesbian uh, AIDS Services Center. And uh, I got a call from a reporter at the LA Weekly. And I didn't really know much from overhead, you know, or percentages. We just netted a million bucks, you know. Um, that's a lot of money. It's unrestricted money. Wow. And it was a huge percentage of this clinic's budget. I mean, I think it was like 20, 30% of their budget or something at the time. 
So this reporter from the LA Weekly calls me and he wants to interview me and I can tell from the get-go this is not a friendly guy. And he starts asking, yeah, but at what, what, percent, what was the percentage cost of the event? How much are you getting paid? How much are these other people getting paid? How much did you spend on advertising and marketing? And I was blown away by these questions. Like, seriously, man? Like, that's how cynical you are? Like, that's what you're interested in? Like, we just broke through a barrier of impossibility and demonstrated something new to the world? And you want to talk about <clears throat> how much it cost? Well, it cost about 30 cents on the dollar, you know, um, which he thought was outrageous. You know, it, 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 it turned out that would be about <clears throat> the best we could we could achieve. You know, the events got more expensive as they as they grew. So that was the first thing, like, wow, he's asking about those things. And then as we became more and more successful, and, you know, people would just focus on, yeah, but how much did it cost? Okay, okay, you netted, um, you netted uh, $194 million for breast cancer in five years, but how much did it cost? Um, And how much did you pay people? And why didn't it work in that city? You know, I, I was wrote, wrote a little tweet the other day that don't destroy, don't confuse the power to destroy with the power to create. You know, people who destroy things are a dime a dozen. People who create things are gold, and we and we assign the same power. Somebody destroys something big, we think they're as powerful as the person who created it. You know, somebody fires Steve Jobs, and we and we think they're as powerful as Steve Jobs. You know, huge, huge mistake. It's very easy to destroy things. You know, we had 9/11, right? So anyway, I'm going off on a soapbox, but but that's. Over the years, we just started to see, wow, things that Coca-Cola and Microsoft and BMW do every day and you don't criticize them for, you're, you want to crucify us for. So what do you think the origin of this is? Where, I know in your TED Talk you talked about the, the, like, oh, the puritanical way of you know, it's something like um, instead of uh, your penance, you gave charity and that sort of the basis of some sort of cultural mores about the, the balance between life and, and charity. Uh, are there other factors, or, or like, where does that? Where, how did we get to a place where a reporter, as glib and ignorant and obnoxious as that guy, would have the gall to call you and challenge the fact that you raised this much money? Like, where does that stem from culturally? I think human self-loathing. You know, it's like the tendency for us to hate ourselves, which is what we were all taught in, in, in you know, at least in the Catholic religion and um, what the Puritans were taught. I mean, Jean Calvin, who, you know, was um, uh, the the French theologian from whom they, they, they drew most of their teachings, um, you know, said that man was despicable in the eyes of God and that it was a hereditary despicability and that even children who hadn't demonstrated it yet were were uh, <clears throat> guilty of it and the human beings were despicable in the eyes of God. Well, if you're despicable in the eyes of God, then, you know, when you do something good or for yourself, you should be ashamed of yourself, right? That's what the Puritans taught. The self has to be negated um, so that you can help the self in others. But that doesn't make any sense, right? Because their self is evil as well. And, you know, in any culture where there's original sin, and we all suffer from it. We're, we're not all that far. We're only a f- in the span of time and history. We're only a few hundred years from that teaching. And so... You know, I think I think it's a malaise that goes well beyond charity. This 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 tendency to be envious or jealous of uh, you know people who uh, achieve great things and, and and people who are proud of themselves. You know. Well, I've been on the receiving end as well. I mean, we're both we both run charities, and I've had donors come and say, "We'd like this. We'd like to give you a check, but we don't want it to pay for salary." I was like, yeah. well, then who's going to do the work? <laughs> this, this perspective is pervading, you know, I would lovingly call it the blue-haired lady club of, of folks who have the access to wealth and the influence to make a difference, but they're stuck in this, this old-school philosophy of overhead. But I wanted to turn it around a bit because we did a show a couple of weeks ago, maybe last season, with the BBB Giving Wise, Giving Wise Alliance and GuideStar, um, about how they have this overhead myth website. Do you know anything about this? Yeah, I what do. Are you it's a big on? deal. Uh, it is a big. Are, are they are they coming over to our side a little bit? 
Well, yeah, you know, um, I mean, what's most amazing is that Charity Navigator signed on to that. It happened in June, you know, Ken Berger and Charity Navigator, and, and, and the statement said, we write to correct a misperception about what donors should pay attention to when donating a char- to a charity. You know, overhead is not the best way to measure a charity. They actually said that some charities should spend more on overhead. Charities don't need low overhead. They need high performance. Now, this happened the same week the Supreme Court struck down the Defense of Marriage Act. And, you know, as I said, I'm gay, so I thought I was living in an alternate universe or something. What's going on? Everything's going my way here in a big way, you know. Um, But, you know, the Better Business Bureau and, and Art Taylor's actually on the on the advisory board of our Charity Defense Council has been <clears throat> quick to point out that you know unlike Charity Navigator, um, they're not a they're not a rating agency and they haven't give given ratings um, based on overhead and that they've been telling people for years to look at things other than overhead. Uh, but I think this is a this is a big step because the Better Business Bureau and Charity Navigator and GuideStar, you know, have a legitimacy um, that Dan Pilata doesn't necessarily have, especially on that side of the argument. So when they say something like that, that perks up people's ears, you know. I mean, I can go and give a speech and people will be convinced, but then you tell them, hey, um, the people who issue the seals of approval feel the same way. Well, that really kind of seals the deal, you know. Now, it's going to take a long time to change this because, you know, a press release and a website aren't going to change decades of indoctrination. And that's why we've created this thing called the the Charity Defense Council. And the, and the single objective of the Charity Defense Council is to change the way the donating public thinks about charity. And some people say, whoa, that's a, how are you going to change 400 years of thinking? Well, you know, I've seen <laughs> Americans' position on gay marriage change uh, in 30 years, wildly, so that you know, I'm I'm married now to my partner, Jimmy, and and I also think if you look at different industries, like the pork industry, people used to think that pork was a fatty heart attack waiting to happen in the 80s, and then the pork producers got together and came up with this slogan, "Pork, the other white meat," and they plastered it all over the world, and now when you eat pork, you think you're being a model of national health so you know if we can change the way people think about pork we can change the way they think about charity and that's what we're going to do all right so you're on the record as saying you know awesome quotes such as like the donating public has been taught about that charity giving is it's a dysfunctional process and we don't want our epitaph to read we kept charity overhead low <laughs> we wanted to read that we changed the world and you know at the end of the day you know i look at uh, some of the stats here and i have them here just to read Something like um, that the number of charities in the U.S. increased by nearly 50% between 2001 and 2010 to nearly 1.3 million charities. In the past two years alone, from 2011 to uh, 2013, over nearly 375,000 shut down. 94% of them generate less than a million dollars, and 45% of all charities bring in less than $25,000 a year. So that's an extraordinary statistic that... Um, it's just it's just fascinating to understand. Like, are they failing because they're not given sort of the food they need to thrive and 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 get nourished by uh, the stigma, or like for organizations that are are solely embedded in the old school of thinking, or what are how is because in your your book your second book Charity Case you talked about can we alter the system to benefit charities? Correct. Yeah. Well, I don't think we should be concerned about uh, small charities in large numbers uh, starting up and failing. I think what we should be concerned about is um, why are the charities, whether they're large or small, that are doing great work, unable to grow at the rate that... uh, Facebook or a WhatsApp or a Groupon uh, is able to grow, you know, meteoric um, <clears throat> scale or practically overnight. I think, you know, that's the question that we really need to ask, and that's what I've been talking about. And it's like, well, the reason 
the reason they don't grow at the rate that these other that these consumer brands grow is because we don't allow them to invest in their own growth you know we don't allow them to invest in fundraising which is the equivalent of sales you know and and the foundations that fund them are largely illiterate about fundraising. Well, a foundation being illiterate about fundraising is like a venture capital firm being illiterate about sales. Um, you know, uh, and, and foundations are sitting on a trillion dollars in assets, and if that money were used in a different way, if that money were invested rather, in, instead of in cancer research, if it were invested in the fundraising departments of the best cancer research charities so that they could triple, quadruple, quintuple, whatever, you know, we, we multiplied the money we started with on the breast cancer three days by 554 times in nine years. That's where the real power is. Right. So let, let's talk then about, like, the takeaways. So when you talk to crowds, I mean, Ted was a bit of a phenomenon, and then your, your delivery and presentation. How many times have you actually given that presentation since Ted? Well, I give a longer version of it. I, I do about an hour-long talk where I'm able to dive more deeply into those things. And I, I probably did that talk... Uh, or some variation on it in the longer form, maybe 50 times last year. But, you know, that's why TED is so amazing. It's You know, that talk has been viewed by close to 3 million people now. I mean, if we did the math, I'd have to live like 73 lifetimes giving speeches all <laughs> night and day to reach that many people, you know. So, so what is the actual tangible takeaway to the layperson in this country who has money to give and who maybe you know, stuck in this rut or maybe not aware that it's, it's 2014, it's time to think differently about charity. What would you tell nonprofits to say to those individuals? And what is your message to the general public about thinking differently? Um, well, my message to the general public would be don't, don't ask about overhead because it's not telling you anything about what good the charity is doing. And all you got to do is think about that for 30 seconds. You know, the fact that a charity tells you 90% of the money goes to the cause doesn't mean they're doing anything good with that 90%. Um, so you want to find out which charities are doing the, the, the most effective, most impactful, most innovative uh, work, number one. And then once you find those charities, you want to invest in their fundraising operations so that they can grow. You know, we've developed a few ads for the general public for the Charity Defense Council, and one of them features someone looking directly into camera, and the headline says, I'm overhead. You know, we've dehumanized the overhead, so we've got to humanize it. And, and the body copy simply says, you know, my name is um, John Anderson. My mother died of breast cancer. I do fundraising for the breast cancer charity, and I'm labeled overhead as if I'm a negative to the cause, but without me there is no cause. My name is John Anderson. I'm totally committed to the end of breast cancer, and I'm overhead. Uh, there's another ad that features a little kid um, with his piggy bank, and he says, I'm going to donate all the money in my piggy bank to the local homeless shelter, and I want them to spend 100% of it on fundraising and administration. And then it explains that this little kid wants the charity to grow. Of course, if you wanted them to grow, you would invest it in fundraising and administration. Or there's another ad that says... Uh, do you want to be the only donor? It asks the reader, do you want to be the only donor? Because when you discourage your favorite charity from spending on fundraising, you're saying you don't want them to find other donors. Do you really want to bear all of the burden yourself? See, we've never asked the general public to think in this way. And it's not right. the general public's fault. It's our sector's fault because we keep telling them what they want to hear. People lead busy lives. They don't have time to think about the economics of the nonprofit sector. But you know, with a few simple pieces of education, you can really change the way they think about these things. So that would be my message to the general public. And my message to nonprofits would be stop looking for a silver bullet and start getting very methodical and strategic about the way that you educate your donors. You know, don't try don't don't think that one two minute message is gonna change the way they think about these things. You know, you're gonna to have to hit them over the head with it ongoingly, whether you have evening seminars that you invite them to or whether it's a message in every piece of direct mail you send or, you know, whether it's the way you recruit board members, you've got to get methodical about it. Okay, so I, I want to go back to, you know, again, there was obviously some controversy the last time you were on the show. By the way, just as, 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 as precedent, I was unaware that you and Ken had differing opinions, so I didn't put you on the show to spar, I just thought it would be an interesting conversation. But honestly, 
I'm in retrospect, I'm glad it, it did that because it, it lent such a voice for the issue to our unknown audience, and you know they just were not aware of this. And yeah. I drop your name and your books anywhere that I go to any nonprofit leader I talk to, as as almost like business development strategy. Like, do not run your company without this required funding. <laughs> You know, yeah. and I mean that. And I, I, we run this company in a very business fashion, and we do advertise, and we do innovate, and we do take risks. And our donors know that. And you're and infamous for it. it. Yes, and we be. But that's the whole thing. If you don't like it, don't don't give and don't participate. But if you're going to give, you know we're doing this, and you're going to give again because you see what our impact. So you've been incredibly, you know, the, the tutelage from just your books. But I want to just go back to: Is there still any lingering? meaningful disagreement between you and that other industry? And if so, what, are the, what, what kind of case are they trying to make? Yeah, well, there, there is. And by the way, Ken and I are very civil with one another, and, and I think Ken gets into a little bit of showmanship sometimes on things like this and elevates his voice. To, you know, it's kind of like Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier, um, <laughs> except I keep knocking him out, you know. Uh, and... Uh, but I think in terms of different, diff- can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, we're here. Oh, in terms of difference of opinion, I mean, I think the I think the the thing that the traditionalists have the biggest problem with is when I say we have to start to pay more money to recruit uh, more of the best and the brightest, and people will say that's nonsense. Money doesn't matter. People are in this sector because of the goodness of their heart, and if they want money, they don't belong here. And I just fundamentally don't don't buy that. You know, if money doesn't matter, then why do you pay your executive director five times what you pay the janitor? If money doesn't matter, just pay everybody the same amount of money that you pay the janitor. You know, the argument just falls apart immediately. And um, you know, and it's not only the amount of money you're offering at the beginning, but the but the incentives, the you know, the the, the performance incentives you offer that get people to work harder and take more risk. Um, you know, they're already in it for the goodness of their heart. Why should they jeopardize their job by taking some huge risk? The only reason they're going to do that is if there's something else to add into the picture. So, you know, so that's the thing that they most argue with me about. That I am the uh, I spell the end of civil society as we know it, that I'm evil, I'm bringing this profit motive into... They sound like Puritans. Right. So, all right, so in, in that sense, are you... Obviously, every employee working for any company should be paid commensurately with similar job in, in, in every sector, correct? That's your basic premise. Um, but I guess I'm, I'm trying to understand from, from the perspective of you know, their argument might be that if you are expected to be the CEO of a $20 million charity, uh, you shouldn't be paid at the level of a $20 million corporation and that there should be some sort of social contract you have with the cause, whether you believe in it more because you're paid or not. It, 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 correct me if I'm wrong, or, or can you explain that a little more for, uh, for me? Well, I mean, the, you know, the people who work at Apple have some social contract with with the, with the aims of that company, you know. Uh, this idea that you you make you only make a difference in the nonprofit sector, and so that's the only place where a social contract should exist, is ridiculous. I mean, look at the difference that the Apple, uh, that the iPad is making for the blind and for the deaf, and um, you know, patient care and all of these other things. But you know, the bottom line, look, the compensation should be tied to value. What value is the person producing? What, what value is the person capable of producing? And then you make an assessment. Um, is that person worth the value they're producing? And if they keep producing more value and, it need, and it's going to take more money to keep them producing more value, should you keep paying them more? It's an economic, it's a simple economic conversation based on a cost-benefit analysis. Um, but instead of using cost-benefit analysis, analyses in the nonprofit sector, we use our gut and our sense of sin you know, and, and morality. And, and that's what I object to, you know. I don't, I don't think that people should be paid more money if we can't prove that they are producing or are going to produce more value. And in the same way that we don't want to pay people for producing more value because we think it should all be the goodness of their heart, we keep people around who don't produce any value because their heart's in it, you know. 
I want to spend just a couple more minutes because we've got about five minutes left in this segment, and this has been fascinating, uh, to talk a little bit more about the Charity Defense Council because I, I am fascinated by the idea of nonprofits having an advocate for nonprofits. And uh, what has been the actual – is there a membership? How do, we have a lot of listeners who run their own charities, and we have a, a large base of leadership in the nonprofit sector. Uh, how do they get involved? What, what's, what's it to learn? What, what do you expect of members? Or what, what's the impact you're hoping it has beyond, you know, obviously educating people about, you know, overhead isn't that, uh, you know, overhead is, is a myth, and, and stop asking about it, that impact. What's the goal of it ultimately for industry itself? Well, first of all, if people want to get involved, they can just go to charitydefensecouncil.org, and there's all kinds of different ways you can get involved there, charitydefensecouncil.org. Um, our goal is singular and bold. You know, the surveys show that about 70% of those surveyed believe that charities waste a great deal or a fair amount of money. Ten years from now, we want 70% of people to believe the opposite. And we're going to do that by fulfilling five functions that the nonprofit sector is currently missing. We're going to be an anti-defamation mechanism for the sector because it doesn't have that. We're going to be an ad agency for the public, like, like pork, the other white meat, because it doesn't have that. We're going to be a legal defense fund for the sector so that we can challenge um, irrational and counterproductive legislation that's brought up. Uh, fourth, we're going to organize the sector. There's no database of the millions of people that work in the health and human services portion of the nonprofit sector. That's ridiculous. We're going to create that. Um, and last, we're going to work on drafting a National Civil Rights Act for charity and social enterprise so that we have a thoughtful federal statutory code to nurture our work rather than a hodgepodge of things that were put together over the last 100 years that don't necessarily relate to anything we're doing today. So those are the five things we're going to do, and, and it's going to be a grassroots movement. It's going to be the first time that the sector has had a brave, sexy, exciting, bold grassroots movement for itself. Well, count me in, and I have one, other, one last question for you. Actually, two, but two parts like the SAT, I suppose. Number one is, is the um, tax-deductible incentive to consumers a barrier or an opportunity for the change you wish to see? Opportunity. Yeah? How so? Yeah. Well, it just incentivizes people to give more, and we want that. So, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a great tool we've been given. It's powerful, and uh, yeah, I just think it's great. And the last question, which comes from my, my staff, is are there any examples of nonprofits that are following the philosophies you've been putting out there that have demonstrated as, as proven case studies that this makes more sense? Every charity in America. <laughs> People think this is some theory that when you spend money on fundraising, it produces more money out the other side. <clears throat> it's not a theory. It's proven by every charity in America. If the money you put into fundraising didn't produce more money than it cost, then every charity in America would operate at 100% fundraising cost. So, but if you, people love examples and they love data, so if you want two great examples to go look at, go look at Wounded Warrior Project and how they've grown to be a $300 million a year organization by massive investments in their fundraising. Or look at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign and how they've increased their size by investments in fundraising. Or look at Invisible Children and the investments they've made in media. Um, but again, you don't need those examples. Stupid cancer is a, an example of it, right? If, 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 if your fundraising cost you more than it produced, you wouldn't be doing the show right now. That is correct. That is very correct. Well, um, you wouldn't yeah, have any no, money I, for the show. <laughs> yeah. We have a nice new studio thanks to, to, to fundraising. So there you go, to, to your point. Um, definitely count us in for anything we can help with with the Charity Defense Council. We are on this side of history and uh, it is very exciting to be able to explain to people that we operate in this sort of philosophy, and overhead is impact. And without overhead, there is no impact. So to, to, to your point, to your credit, thank you for everything that you've been doing and will continue to do. And uh, I eventually hope to meet you in person one day. We keep crossing paths, and it hasn't worked out. 
But uh, I, I look forward to that, and I want to thank you once again for being a returning champion on the show. Um, certainly more to come from uh, the world of Dan Pilata. Thanks so much, Matthew. It's, it's, it's fun to be on again, and I look forward to meeting too. Okay, thanks, Dan. We've been talking to Dan Pilata, author of Charity Case, Uncharitable. He is the uh, president of Advertising for Humanity, founder and president of Charity Defense Council, and his TED Talk. Check it out. Google, the way we think about charity is dead wrong. Three million total views can't be wrong. Dan, take care of yourself, and Godspeed. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. All right, Dan Pilata, everyone. I just think it's important that people understand that the old school way of thinking about charity is completely different today. And in an age of digital innovation and, and, and social enterprise and massive online communities of people that have information at the tip of their hands have the right to understand that this is the way business should work. We would not be who we are if we didn't take risks, if we didn't innovate, if we didn't spend money where charities wouldn't normally spend money, and if we didn't talk to people about why we do what we do with the way we do it, and they just understand that. People give us money because they know we're operating differently. So, anyway, end of soapbox. I'm really, Dan just gave me a nice ego boost because he likes our charity. <laughs> um, anything else? Prepare to activate. That's it, Allie? I don't have anything. Nothing? You got nothing? Nothing. Okay, and Maureen's tired. Maureen's half asleep right now. Sorry, guys. got to feed you better. It's been a long Monday. <laughs> I ran 10 miles yesterday, guys. I, you got the half marathon coming up, right? Yeah. So, yeah, this Sunday. This Sunday. Coming Sunday. So between you now and next marathon. radio show, Maureen will have run the New York City half marathon. Yes. So you'll find out if I'm on the show next weekend whether or not I survive. <laughs> we want a full miles. If I can do it, anybody can do it. That's all I'm going to Well, didn't you get scooped up by the pickup bus or something? I, there was a lot of gray area. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice, very nice. <laughs> All right, folks, thanks for listening to tonight's broadcast. And now it's time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. <laughs> that was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show, our 299th broadcast. We are best most fun we did, talking stick, and stupid cancer. We'd like to thank tonight's guests, Aaron Scarta and the one and only Dan Pallotta. Next week's show is our 300th episode celebrating 14 seasons. Seven years, 300 shows. Join us all, the Stupid Cancer team, as we celebrate this major milestone in the history of Cancerland with a retrospective on the past seven years with special musical guests with the epic survivor musician couple Kiko and David Collins from New York City, live music in studio, and some of the more interesting moments across the last 14 years of shows. Subscribe to our show anytime for free on iHeartRadio Talk, iTunes Podcast, and Blog Talk Radio. Check us out anytime at stupidcancer.org and stupidcancershow.org. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck, on behalf of Annie Goodman, Kenny Kane, Maureen Sweet, Allie Ward, and our whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show, thanks for listening. Have a great week, and we'll see you back here live at 8 o'clock next Monday. Good night, folks. Good night, everybody.